Uh, let's turn our attention now to the Word of God, and I'd ask that you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. <clears throat> There's a lot of ways that we can learn things. Sometimes we learn from positive examples, and sometimes we learn from negative examples. Uh, there's a lot of things that I know in my life that I've never had to learn because I've watched other people do stupid things. And I don't know about you, but I grew up on a farm in the middle of Kansas, in the middle of the country, and so I saw people do a lot of crazy things with electric fences and with farm animals, and I've seen the damage that can be done by mistreating farm equipment and tractors and the foolish things that can happen when you try to ride a four-wheeler on the ice of the pond in the winter. I, I've seen these things occur, so I don't have to do them to know what happens to those who do them. In the Bible, there are many times the Bible will just tell you what to do. Sometimes it will give you information. It will give you commands. Other times it will give you examples. Sometimes those examples are positive and we see exactly how we should operate. Many times those examples are negative and we learn from negative examples what to avoid. Over the past several weeks, we've been studying the trials of Paul before the government officials Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And during that time, we've highlighted six different flawed responses to the gospel. We considered information and procrastination and pretension and persecution and accusation and superiority. And we methodically dissected each of those to understand what it looks like when our efforts to preach the gospel are rejected by people with hard hearts. And finally, today, we are going to see a positive example. Finally, today, we are going to see what it's supposed to look like when someone receives the Word of God and gives the right response. In Acts chapter 26, Paul explains his testimony of salvation to King Agrippa. Not only did Luke record the original events of Paul's con conversion way back in Acts chapter 9, he also provides for us three separate times that Paul shares that story with other people. And each time he shares his testimony, it's a little bit different. This is the final time that Paul shares his events of his conversion in the book of Acts, and it's also the longest of all of his testimonies. It's possible that there's a lesson there that is, the farther we go in our sanctification, the more we'll have to say about our salvation. But there are unique details here in this uh, format of his testimony that you won't find anywhere else in the New Testament. Before we begin making our way through the text, I'd just like to ask that once again we bow our knee to the Lord, asking him for his blessing on the preaching and hearing of his word. Let's pray. Father God, now as we come to your word, just as we sang a moment ago, you have the words of life. Lord, I thank you, Father God, that you are God for us, that you love us, that you have sought us, that you have planned out our salvation, that you have purposed for our good. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son, God, with us, Emmanuel, the one who has come to save, who purchased our salvation at the cross. And I thank you, Lord, for sending your Spirit, who is God within us, who is able to work in our hearts and our souls to conform us to the image of your Son. We pray, Lord, that today, through all of your acts, through the entire person of the Trinity, Lord, that you would work in us, that you would transform us, that you would make us like your son. And God, I pray that today as we look at this example of how Paul responded to the gospel, it would cause to humble us. It would be cause for us to glory in God our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. 
If you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 26, it's probably going to be helpful for you to follow along with your finger in your Bible as we journey through the passage this morning. As you've done for the last few weeks, uh, what we're going to do today is very similar. We're going to take the passage in bite-sized chunks as we walk through it, and I'm going to do a running commentary so that we can do our best not to overlook any of the details here of this rather lengthy passage. Then, once we've made our way through the text, we're going to examine three ways that Paul responded properly to the gospel. Namely, he responds with hope and with repentance and with faith. Acts 26, verse 1. This is God's word. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Let's start by just getting a feel for the room here. Let's get a feel for the room where Paul is standing. Paul was in a courtroom setting. Many of these Roman courtrooms were in breezy, open-air buildings, sometimes in outdoor amphitheaters, but they were often places with as much light as you could get. They were places that you often see in ruins in these days, places with large Corinthian-style pillars along the outside, places made of marble and of stone. And Paul was sitting there, or standing there, before the judgment seat of Agrippa. Agrippa would have taken his seat at the very front of the room. And on one side of him, we know there was Bernice. And on the other side, there was Felix, the governor. I'm sorry, Festus, the governor. And we know that there was a small crowd that accompanied Agrippa. So it was likely that this room was filled with all sorts of high society people. It tells us back in the previous chapter that it was filled with military tribunals and all of the prominent men of the city. This was probably a pretty packed room. This was a... uh, trial of high importance in their community. Everyone wanted to know, why is it that the governor and the king would both be in the same room hearing the same man at the same time? This literally never happens. It's also interesting because there's no accusers in the room. It's not like the previous trial where the Sanhedrin were there with their slimy lawyer to point fingers at Paul. In this room, it's an examination. It's not even a formal trial. Paul would have been the last person let into the room at this point. Everyone else would have taken their seats, and Paul would have been let in in chains, ushered into the center of the floor, probably wearing chains on both his legs and his arms. Don't think of these as handcuffs. Think of these as individual chains that would have tied him so that his feet and arms would be somewhat tied together, so that if he tried to run, he wouldn't get very far. Notice also that he's led into the middle of the room, And he begins by holding out his arm, according to this first verse. Now, this is a common form of Roman speech. In fact, if you ever look at a painting or at a sculpture of Roman emperors as they are speaking to the public, you'll see that they usually have their left hand holding up part of their tunic or their toga, and then their other hand is outstretched just like this, and this is how they would speak. And they would do that because they thought it was a way for them to look cool as they were speaking. I won't do that because I'm not cool. (laughs) But if you consider the fact that Paul now walks into this room, he begins operating like he always says he does. To the Jews, he becomes a Jew. And to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to the Greeks, he becomes like them. He begins communicating in their format. And he begins speaking to them. He employs the same stature as them. And now in this room, he is surrounded by wolves. And he is a lamb in the center of them, standing firm to express in confidence what God had done for him. Verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all accusations of the Jews. 
especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. If you pay attention to the Supreme Court, and especially if you pay attention to the nominations that are made to the Supreme Court, one thing that you will notice is that every single justice that has been nominated to the Supreme Court for at least the last 100 years, before they were nominated, they previously clerked for an existing justice, for someone who was already sitting on the bench. News outlets and Senate committees will often highlight which justice they served under because that is one of the best ways to know how to view and what to expect from the way they see the law. What are you going to be like? Whoever you clerked for, that's what you're going to be like. Paul was not an unknown figure in Hebrew society. He was widely considered to be a rising star amongst the Sanhedrin. He was a student of Gamaliel, who according to some scholars, some scholars that are not studying the Bible, but scholars of Hebrew history will tell you that he was the most widely respected scholar alive during his stint on the Sanhedrin. In fact, back in those days, the high priest was not highly respected most of the time because it was an office that was bought and paid for, sold for money from one person to the next, like we see with Annas and with Caiaphas. But Gamaliel was not like that. Gamaliel was a man who actually believed what he said he believed, and therefore Gamaliel was highly respected. And Paul was like a clerk for Gamaliel. It was like being a clerk for the Supreme Court justice. Now, Paul explained to Agrippa that he's not only part of this exclusive group of the Sanhedrin, not just part of this group of religious elites. He also tells him, I adhered strictly to the strictest and most rigid part of our religion. I adhered to the doctrine of the Pharisees, the most particular people who kept every jot and tittle of Jewish law. I was one of those. And not only that, everyone that has accused me knows it. Everyone who has been here, if they would just come testify, would tell you the exact same thing. Verse 6, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. <laughs> Paul makes a pretty interesting point here, I think. The Sanhedrin claimed to be waiting for the Messiah to come. You claim that you're expecting the Messiah to come. And the Pharisee party in particular is one who typically held the majority, and they were explicitly committed to the promise that the Messiah would bring about the resurrection. And now he's standing here being accused by the Sanhedrin of believing the exact same things the Sanhedrin claimed to believe. He is the one being consistent. The Sanhedrin claimed to believe the Old Testament. They claimed to believe that Elijah raised someone from the dead, from the widow of Zarephath's son, and that Elisha raised the Shunammite's son from the dead. And the Pharisees especially should not think it incredible that God raises anyone from the dead. 
And Paul is absolutely correct in pointing out that he alone is living out what he claimed to believe. He alone is living on a consistent set of beliefs and principles. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is not only a sobering passage about the extent of Paul's aggression against the saints, it also reveals some incredibly important information. This is literally the only place in the entire New Testament that Paul reveals that he had an official vote that he could cast against the Christians. When I was in middle school, I had the opportunity to serve as a page for a day in the Kansas State Capitol. I don't know if that's what they call them here. A page is basically a slave who works for a state senator or house representative who does whatever they say. I don't think they pay you. I didn't get paid. And what they do is they just tell you what to do all day long, and it gives you an opportunity to learn what happens in the state house on a very real level. Well, when I was there, I was doing things all day. I was running letters across the building and memos to different people and personal notes all over the place. But I had no authority. When a bill was proposed or put forward on the Senate floor, I was not allowed to speak because I was like 11 or 12 years old. And I was obviously not permitted to give my opinion because I was not a senator. And I certainly was not allowed to vote because I had not been elected. I had no authority. In this passage, Paul tells us that he had advanced in the Sanhedrin to being one of the official 70 members of their body. Each of these 70 members would have been given a colorful, polished stone that would identify them. And when a vote was taken, if they wanted to vote in favor, they would take their stone and place it into the ballot box. And the majority wins. Paul literally voted to execute Christians. Now, why would he share that information here? Why would he tell this to Agrippa? He literally doesn't say this anywhere else. Well, simply because he is displaying how radical and how zealous he was on this side of the spectrum. This is to highlight just how dramatic his transformation is going to be. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. Have you ever been in a dark room and then all of a sudden somebody turns a flashlight on directly in the direction of your face? It's pretty startling. As, if you were a kid, you've had that happen. Somebody has tried to blind you with a bright flashlight. Well, think about it this way. They're not in a dark place. They're not in a dark room or a tent in the middle of the night in the woods. They are in on the road to Damascus, in the Middle East, where the sun is blazing hot at midday. And the sun is the thing you don't want to look in that direction because you might not be able to see anyone else for a while. And he says that at this point, surrounding them, a light appeared so brightly that it knocked all of them to the ground. 
Verse 14, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Being that Jesus was addressing him in Hebrew, he uses Paul's Hebrew name, Saul, and notice that Jesus does not ask why he's persecuting the church. He doesn't ask why you're pursuing Christians in Damascus. He doesn't ask why he cast his vote for Christians to be executed. He identifies so closely with his people that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He then adds, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, goads existed in multiple forms, and they still exist today in multiple forms. Now, primarily what they use is an electronic cattle prod that will shock a cow if you poke it, but we still use things like this to this very day in farming. In the book of Judges, chapter 3, there's a judge named Shamgar who was said to have killed over 600 Philistines with an ox goad. This was probably an individual cattle prod type goad that would have been carved down into a very sharp point. That if a cow starts going in the wrong direction, you just kind of nudge them. And if they keep going the wrong direction, it becomes more painful to them as they continue to push against the sharp object. These are sharp sticks that were often used in farming. But most ox goads at this point in time, when Paul is writing, most ox goads were placed on plows that would be placed directly behind an ox. So that if the ox became a little frisky and wanted to get out, he would start kicking back behind him. But instead of kicking the plow, he would kick a goad. And instead of actually freeing himself, he would just cause himself to bleed. And so they would quickly learn, it's a bad idea to keep kicking behind me. And they would just do their job and pull the plow. Jesus is telling Saul of Tarsus, you have to stop kicking the goads. You have heard the truth. You have seen the gospel at work. You have watched Christians die holding to the promise of the resurrection. You personally held the coats of Stephen as people stoned him to death, and he was looking at me as he was brought into eternity. You need to stop kicking against the goads, Paul. Verse 15, Paul says, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and, place among, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You'll notice something interesting here. You'll notice that Jesus never asked Paul to do anything. He never asks a question. There is no permission requested and there is no permission granted. Jesus just said that he is claiming Paul as a servant. I am giving you this task as a missionary. You are now a witness for me. And he immediately presents Paul with marching orders and tells him, you're going to stop hunting down Christians and instead you are going to start making them. You are going to stop destroying disciples and start making every effort to create them, both from Jewish and Gentile populations. Now it's very important to notice that Paul is claiming to have been given official business from an authority figure. 
The Romans understood authority figures. And now he is standing before Agrippa and he's saying, I was giving mar- given marching orders from somebody who stands far above your position, King Agrippa. I was given marching orders from God himself. He is the one who commanded me to preach this good news. If you go against God, then you're just like I was, persecuting Jesus himself. Verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Now, not only was there nothing illegal about what Paul was preaching in this message of repentance, What he was saying was quite literally protected by court precedent at this point from many trials that had taken place across the Roman Empire, including some of which were surrounding Paul's works themselves. There is no way any honest judge could look at this situation and claim that Paul had done anything worthy of punishment, much less worthy of the violence that the Jews were pursuing. Verse 22, to this day... I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Once again, Paul hammers home the reality that his message is perfectly in line with the Old Testament promises and prophecies. I'm not telling you anything new, guys. This is exactly what Moses and all the other prophets said was coming. This is exactly what all of the Old Testament was talking about. I am speaking to you about everything that you claim to believe. In the following verses, Festus is going to interrupt Paul and the rest of the dialogue that we see there was all covered last week. But for now, what I want to do is recap what we just saw by highlighting the proper ways that Paul received the gospel. First, I want you to consider hope. This is not something that is often spoken about when we talk about somebody responding to the gospel. But did you catch the way that he made the point of hope in verses 6 and 7? He said, and now I stand here on trial. Why? Because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Most of the time we use the word hope, we're not speaking in biblical terminology. Most of the time we use the word hope, what we really mean is something much closer to the word wish. It means something that we desire for, some future outcome that we would like. We want something and we have some kind of positive expectation that it might possibly come true. That is hope. That's not the way the Bible uses that word. In Scripture, it means that we are to have a settled confidence or a confident trust in God's promises. If God said he would do it, I believe him. It's like the three young men who were told by their king, bow down to the statue or I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And what did they say? Well, God's going to protect us. And if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we're still never going to do what you say. Because I trust what God says. And I trust what he says more than your threats. 
It's important for us to see that the Old Testament is littered with commands to hope in the Lord, to hope in his promises. Those are good promises, and they were given to people who were enslaved or who were in exile, but they were not abstract commands. They were not told to just hope in some kind of future event. They were told to hope in a person, hope in God. Hope in God. Jonathan, last summer you preached, hope in God. Yes, hope in God. Let me show you one way the New Testament presents this to us. Colossians 1.27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's response to the gospel was to stop putting his hope in worldly, earthly ambitions. It was not to be the top dog in the Sanhedrin anymore. It was not to be a scholar par excellence. His hope was not in living a long life or having a full retirement fund. His hope was in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Jesus in me, the hope of glory. We also see that Paul responded to the gospel with repentance. Although Paul doesn't use that word to describe himself, he certainly highlighted the active evidence of his repentance. To repent means to have a change of heart and a change of mind about something that results in outward actions that change. It means if you are going one direction, you make a 180 turn in the opposite direction. In perhaps the most dramatic example possible, Paul went from desiring to kill people who believe the gospel to saying, I'm willing to die for the gospel. Every single human being who will be in heaven will have this in common. Every single one of them have repented of their sins. There is no salvation without repentance. There must be a turning away from sin and a turning to God. This is not unique to Paul's experience. It is the story of every true believer. We also see Paul respond to the gospel in faith. Faith is just the noun form for the word believe in Greek. And how can you tell what somebody really believes? How can you tell if they have faith in something? Recently, there is a trend that's been going around with super tall skyscrapers around the world. Perhaps you've seen this. They've begun putting these viewing locations at the top of buildings where it literally juts out from the building and it's, it's an enclosure made of glass so that you can walk out and you can look down hundreds of feet below you with nothing but a thin pane of glass between you and imminent death. Well, how do you know if somebody actually believes that glass will hold them? It's because they'll walk out there, uh, huh, and then they'll walk back. But there are some pretty hilarious videos on YouTube of people who get out there and they look down, and then all of a sudden, everything they thought they trusted, they can no longer trust. So they collapse and they get on their hands and knees and they slowly crawl back to what they perceive to be safety. Do they really trust it? Obviously not. Do they actually have faith in that glass? Obviously not. If they did, they would stand there confidently. Paul displays that he has faith because he stands there confidently on the gospel before these people who have put him on trial. How do you know if somebody has genuine faith in Christ? It's going to play itself out in the regular, mundane, everyday life of the true believer. It's going to affect the way that you think and speak and who you hang out with and what you watch. It's going to change the way that you talk about people behind their backs and how you talk about people who you think are significant and how you talk to people in traffic. Faith works itself out in every aspect of life. Genuine faith is displayed in a pattern of life that is consistent with growing Christian maturity. 
Paul displayed faith in Christ by rejecting, rejecting his old practice of sin and by radically living in full abandon for the glory of Christ. Paul responded to the gospel in the right way. But today I have, three, I have a bonus point for you. Point number four, let's talk about grace. You see, hope and repentance and faith, they are all proper responses to the gospel. Yes, they are. But it's vital that we understand that nobody will ever exhibit, exhibit any of these responses apart from the grace of God. What made Paul different? What made him different from the Sanhedrin? What made him different from Felix? What made him different than Festus? What made him different than Agrippa? What caused him to be persuaded of the gospel? What caused him to hope in Christ? What caused him to repent? What caused him to have faith? The answer is simple. Because God gave him those gifts. If you are a Christian, there is no grounds for boasting. You are no better than those who reject the gospel. You've just been given a gift. But don't trust me. Let's see what the word of God has to say about this. Paul was part of the Sanhedrin before his salvation. He was literally on a murder mission to extinguish anyone he could find that had bowed the knee to Jesus. He is described in Acts chapter 9 verse 1 as breathing out murderous threats. It's like he couldn't take a breath without a renewed cycle of anger and hatred and vehemence towards Christianity. What changed? Here's what changed. God intervened. Jesus revealed himself to Paul. He radically and emphatically interrupted Paul's direction. He claimed Paul as a servant for himself. He transformed Paul to such an extreme degree that his goals and desires and ambitions and purposes were all aimed in the exact opposite direction than they were before. If you are saved, that is exactly what happened to you. God interrupted your direction. He transformed your heart. He gave you a new desire to love and to follow him. And included in that process, the Lord gave you the gifts of hope in the Lord and repentance of sin and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look carefully at how Peter tells us our hope comes to us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Listen carefully to the words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How did we come to that living hope? Because he caused us to be born again. Our hope in the Lord is described as a living hope. It is not static. It is not stale. It is not a wish. It is not going to fail. It is a living hope. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. According to the scriptures, it is God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who initiates all true Christian hope. Before God did this work, all of your hope was in vain things, dead hope. But God, being rich in mercy, gives the gift of a living hope. Let's do a little digging and see where repentance comes from. In his excellent book, The Doctrine of Repentance, the Puritan author Thomas Watson defined repentance this way. He says, repentance is a grace of God's spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly transformed. Now, Watson here is claiming that repentance is a grace that originates from within God himself. Does the Bible back up that definition? Let's do some digging. Acts chapter 5, verse 31 says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. To do what? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. According to this verse, repentance occurs when God himself gives repentance. But you might ask yourself, yeah, 
But that says it's how it works for Israel. What about everybody else? Well, let me just first say, at this stage in the book of Acts, the gospel had not yet gone out beyond Israel. At this point, it was isolated just to the Jewish people. And we're going to see a few chapters later that the Lord begins to take the gospel further into the Gentile world. But let's just jump forward a little bit in the, in the book of Acts to chapter 11, when it does get to the Gentile world in verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. How does repentance come to the heart of a Gentile? Only if God grants it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Paul encourages Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness, specifically because, quote, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. When you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, there is a sense in which it's like talking to a brick wall. You're talking to someone who is blind. They can't see the picture that you're painting. They are dead in their sins, so good luck waking them up on their own. They are slaves to their sin, and they're happy in their bondage. They don't even want freedom. That is, unless the Lord does a good work to open their eyes and to give them life and to set them free. One of the ways that he does this is by giving the gift of repentance. When you are sharing the gospel, you can argue and persuade and cajole and manipulate all you want, but you can never produce repentance in their heart. You can't even produce repentance in your own heart. God is the only one that can make the seeds of the gospel grow, including through the process of giving you the gift of repentance. And finally, what about faith? In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul writes, For it has been granted to you that, you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, obviously, the main point that Paul is making here is that, su that suffering is something God gives you. But almost as if it's the most obvious thing in the world, Paul almost breezes by the fact that to believe or to have faith is also something that was granted to you. Listen to it again. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Nobody will believe unless it is granted to them. Or for the best possible place to speak to this with clarity from the scripture, let's look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why do you think Paul functioned in such a humble manner when he was standing before Agrippa in that council? Did you see how there was not one point of his testimony that he spoke highly of himself or gave credit to himself or claimed responsibility for his own salvation or in any way pointed to himself as the cause of his transformation? At every turn, all of the glory was given to the Lord. He doesn't boast because he has no grounds to do so. He did not have a heart of superiority against Agrippa or anyone else in that room for that matter, because he knew better than anyone else perhaps that his faith was from God. If he was left to his own devices, he would have continued into Damascus hunting down Christians. He would have spent the rest of his life pursuing them to their deaths. It was because of the grace of God that he was standing before Agrippa, not something he worked for or earned. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. It is all of grace. It is 
all of God's grace. What makes you different from the debaucherous co-worker who is involved in every form of evil you can imagine? What makes you different from your relatively moral neighbor who rejects the existence of God? What makes you different from your family members who have bought into the false religions of Hinduism or Islam or Roman Catholicism or Mormonism? Paul asks it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? If you are a Christian, you should be the most humble and grateful person in the world because you hit the jackpot. You got the treasure of the universe without doing anything to get it. You have been given an inheritance that is unimaginable. But let's scratch that. It's not that you did nothing to get it. It's that you actively worked against it. He gave you that grace even though you spit in the face of the king of the universe. And that you rebelled against him. And you ran from him. And you turned your back on him. And every time you heard the message of the gospel, you said, not for me. I will not have you to rule over me. Not this time, God. Yet in his infinite grace, just like he did for Paul, he calls you out. In love, God sent his son to take your punishment and to give you his righteousness and to reconcile your broken relationship. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It's all of grace. Paul received it. If you're a believer, so did you. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That is John 1.16. If you're not a Christian, perhaps you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit at work in your heart today. Perhaps it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but accept the grace of God and the gifts of faith, repentance, and hope, because he is a good Savior, and he is worth it. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the example of Paul. In this final time that we've seen his testimony here in the book of Acts, we thank you that you have given us unique insight into what you did for him. Just how powerfully you turned him from one direction to the other. But Lord, I also thank you that we can look around this room and we can see trophies of grace where you have done the exact same thing. Where we can see in one another that you have taken sinners and you have made them your own. That you have taken those who have rebelled and that you have made them your own children. That you have taken people who were in Adam and you have made us one with Christ. Lord, I thank you for your infinite grace. I pray, Lord, that today we would be a thankful people, a humble people, a people committed to responding daily in these ways with hope and with repentance and with faith. Lord, I pray for anyone in the room that does not yet know Christ, who has not yet bowed the knee, who has not yet experienced the work of the Spirit in their heart. Lord, I pray that today you would call them as your servant and as your minister. That today you would call them to your side. That today you would give them the gifts of faith and repentance and of hope. We pray these things in faith. In Jesus' name we ask them. Amen.